I'm really excited to have Mark up here because although um, when I became senior pastor here, Mark didn't know that I knew him about 15 years ago as the hockey coach for his daughter. Now, he knew me there, but just didn't connect those two. And it's really neat because his daughter, Ellen, was just, she was so aggressive and she was the younger one. She always wanted to get out whenever the power play, whatever was going on. She wanted to be out there. And I said, your time will come. Well, her time did come. She actually went on and was a part of an NCAA championship women's hockey team, right? Absolutely. And uh, Kevin gets all the credit. Yeah, and I thank just, you. <laughs> Needlepoint, hockey just, coach. I just want to say to the congregation <laughs> that if Kevin can do for my needlepoint skills what he did for my daughter, <laughs> I'm all in. <laughs> oh, I did nothing for his daughter. It was Brano. I remember Brano was the guy. Anyway, um, so we, we, we had an opportunity just to get to know each other there. But I've asked him to come because he's encouraged me a few times over the last number of years to, to do a series around this whole idea of, of the spiritual realm, living in the spiritual area where there's struggle and there's warfare and, and this whole idea that there's a Satan and there's a battle and all this stuff. And, and so I finally thought, OK, I, you know, for sure we'll do it. It'd be a good thing to do. But I thought it was really interesting because, Mark, you come from a scientific background and you, as a doctor, you know, you've been uh, head of department of orthopedics at the U of M. You were one of the key initiators and CEO of TRIA Orthopedic Center, um, do a lot of lecturing on medical scientific stuff, as well as he was even on our outreach commission here serving. So all these different things. But I, I, I found it always interesting that you would be egging me on. Because you think of scientific stuff, you think of the fact that it's repeatable, it's demonstrable, that you can see it and you can, can, and can verify it. But yet, what got you into this or interested or understand it? Well, it, it, it comes out of a personal experience of caring for injured patients and just the, the large number of individuals who in, involved with self-harm or injuring others, that it was clear to me with a knowledge uh, of this subject that there were clearly demonic forces involved in these self-harms and these self-destructive behaviors. Well, and it was in your, wasn't it in your earlier days when you were in the medical training center back in California, Fullerton, that was Chuck Swindoll who kind of helped open your eyes to some of that? that that's correct. When Beth and I were uh, brand new Christians in attending the Fullerton Free Church, uh, and I was in medical school, Chuck did a long series on on the, the devil and his demons. And it was, it came out of a time just with our culture uh, the movie The Exorcist was uh, was very popular, and he wanted to educate the congregation as to the reality of these forces uh, uh, based on scripture. Did you find anything effective, like you know, when you when you talk about authority and you know people, oh, I should be afraid of this, or what's uh, some of the things you've noticed? Well, the, the the real tip that I learned from that series is is when I sense oppression from from demonic forces coming on, I I just deal with it really simply and just say. Satan, I sense your presence here, and I am saved by the blood of Christ, and in his name I command you to flee. And it's been, it's been a very, very effective way to, to deal with these situations when they, when they come about. So I just want to thank you for egging me on, and I think the congregation thanks you as well. Thanks, Mark. I wanted Mark to begin that because there's a lot of thought of, you know, is this stuff really real? What's really going on? And I have to share with you in my own life, I have struggled with depression, and there are times when I will experience despair and a sense of hopelessness that is just, it's oppressive. And um, I, I want to say, first of all, depression and those things, there's not a, I don't want to make it like a simplistic answer. They're very complex, but I found in my life at times 
this, some of this stuff would come when I was moving into spiritual areas, when I was actually, you know, getting prepared for a message or I was doing some of these things and I, and I would experience that. And I, I realized one of the real incredible gifts or helps that came in my life was when I began to realize that's what it was. And I don't always catch it because the deception is so um, crafty. But when I actually catch it and I understand I'm there, it's this interesting thing where I'm able just to kind of go, um, this isn't me. What's going on here isn't me. And I reject it in the name of Christ and I start to live. And, and I've actually had to produce, as I've talked about, habits like thankfulness and, and, and you know, joy, this is the Lord's made, that have been practices that have helped me even in some of the stuff that might not even be oppression, but I know there's a peace that was oppression because I can feel it lift. And that may be true in your case. It, it takes spiritual discernment. And so I think it's important that you understand this whole idea of struggle. And it was through some of that that God began to deal in my life. And, and, and probably 20 years ago began to start moving me into this path of really understanding this spiritual realm. And the fact there really are evil spirits and there are actually angels. And there is a realm that's more real than what we see here. And so what we're going to be doing is I'm going to be doing a, a, a six week series coming up this Wednesday where we'll get into some of this stuff more around the spiritual realm and talk about spiritual warfare. And then if you would like to be and you're not in a small group, we would invite you to be in a small group where you actually take some of these things and meet with some other people and begin to put God's word around some of these areas that you might be needing some direction or, or wisdom on. It's interesting that Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus who seems to be a fairly mature church compared to other churches. And so he begins and he, he, he writes some beautiful stuff doctrinally in those first three chapters where he's really encouraging them to understand who they are in God and what God has done for them. And then he says, because when you know this, you can begin to live it out. So he goes in chapter four and begins to start talking about some very practical ways to live it out. And it's, I think, very interesting that he would conclude with these words in Ephesians 6, reminding us this is not just a picnic in the park. This is not just, you know, come to church and put in some time and God's really happy with you. Get some new things and get some self-help tools. This is a battle that we are in. So then Ephesians 6, he reminds them and he says, finally, this is kind of my final thoughts, guys, as I'm writing this letter to you. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. I want you to connect here two things. God does something. He brings something. But you also actively have to participate. We partner with this work of God. For our struggle, and you might want to underline that word struggle, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the form of God so that when the day of evil comes. Now, catch this. There is a day of evil that will come. There is a time. There's points. We're going to talk about that in a moment that comes he again goes back to this. In your struggle, stand. So you may be able to stand your ground. You, that's an important couple words there. Stand your ground. And after you have done everything, 
to stand. It's a very, very strange sentence in the Greek language. It's a hard one to actually translate. And the best way you can translate it, because Paul seems to be just so intense about this, he says, when it comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And then he has to say, and when you've done everything, you've come into the last bit of your strength, remain standing. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts here. I just pray that this would be an infusion of your love and grace and mercy into people's lives, that they would know you and walk in you more fully, completely. That God, when the day of evil comes, and some may be in it right now, that you would cause us to stand and in our standing, we would see the power of God released in our lives, in our families, with our friends, in our workplaces, and in this community and throughout the world. Amen. The word struggle is a Greek word which means to wrestle. It's the idea of hand-to-hand combat. And Paul is basically picturing this, what we talked about last week, is that there's a big battle, there's a real evil enemy, and there is the personal power which comes in the person of Jesus Christ, that if you align yourself with him and begin to move and walk with him, begin to trust him, it's all about believing and standing and trusting in him, you will begin to experience his power in your life. But recognize this, that when you move into that, you're going to find times of struggle. You're going to see the enemy come against you. He does not want you to win. And so he pictures it like this hand-to-hand combat. I remember, um, in, in a sense, when I look at this and I, I understand this idea of struggle, this sense of exhaustion is what you get everything you can do to stand. I remember to an experience that I had. I had the opportunity in high school to wrestle for four years, and I do not know of any other sport. Anybody else will wrestle? There, I don't know of many other sports that are as physically as draining as, as wrestling. I played hockey. I played basketball, soccer, football. Um, surely baseball and golf don't come close. <laughs> but in wrestling, it's, you kind of go, it's six minutes of your life. Big deal. But for the first two minutes... You're trying to take a person down. If they get you down, then you're, you're trying to hold them down or pin them, and then you're trying to escape. In the next two minutes, one of you is on top, and the other person's trying to escape, and they're trying to pin you, and you've got a foe all the way through. And so you're like, I remember at times it would be five and a half minutes, and I'd be holding on to a win, or I'd be trying to get out. And it would be like how the seconds took hours, and I was exhausted. Sometimes when you're winning, you're just kind of going, oh, if I can just hold it, I can just stand here. Do everything in my exhaustion to stand. And that's kind of the picture he's given. There are times in your life, and you may be in one right now, where you will be in the exhausting struggle with the enemy of your soul. Times when you will be engaged in the fight of your life for yourself or even someone else you love. Jesus went into the desert for 40 days and in the desert went into this time where he was tempted by Satan. Direct confrontation. This was no little kind of playground experience. This was big time cage fighting stuff. And Jesus is there under this temptation. And as a result of it, and people don't realize this, you know, that Jesus was fully man. He had to have the innocence of who he was and his character proved through tempting and through testing, which none of us have ever gone to the extent of tempting and testing he has, because we always, every one of us has failed at some point. He went through the whole thing with never failing. So he's done it all. From innocence in order to make and bring about virtue. 
And here is Jesus being tested and characters being proved, and that's what's going on in your life right now. You have a great opportunity for character to come forth in your personality, in your person, as what God wants you to do. But here's what's interesting. He's out there. He's in this time of incredible temptation, and Satan leaves him because he can't defeat him. And then we read in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, when the devil finished all his tempting, he left him until, now catch these words, an opportune time. He knows when to strike. And so at times in the life of Jesus, you would find that he would come under great temptation. One time when the miracles were happening in the whole city of Capernaum, they came to him. They wanted to make a healing center there. And he goes, no, he prays. I have to go elsewhere. That temptation was overcome. And another time he feeds 5,000 and all the people want to make him king. And he says, no. And he goes on until he goes to a place where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's under the, the struggle of his life, actually sweating blood, saying, Father, I know you've called me to sacrifice to do this incredibly painful painful, horrible thing that, that it's not about me, but it's for the love of other people, for you and me. And he, he's sweating his blood and he struggles and stands and then walks out. He, in the spirit, stands and walks out in his flesh, the cross. People don't realize the struggle in his case. And that way, I think often, that's why I say prayer is so important. That's why once a month on Wednesdays we talk about prayer. That's why prayer is the basis of what we do here. It is in your spirit in prayer where you win the battle, then you walk it out. It's imperative you understand the struggle. So I want to share with you and clarify what the struggle is. What is this battle that you and me are in? I want to share with you our struggle is what it is not about and what it is about. Okay? And the first one is just plain and simple in Scripture here. And then I'll draw off from some other places as we go. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, says Paul, but against the spiritual forces. I want you to mark this, because this has been a difficult one for me to learn in my life when it comes to times of struggle. Whenever you think your struggle is against another human being, you are in the wrong battle. Okay? Never is another human being, flesh and blood, your enemy. Always behind that flesh and blood is a spiritual force of some degree. That has caused that person to be deceived or has caused you to be deceived if you think that is your enemy. As tempting as it may have been for Paul, never once does he say in his scriptures here that he writes in these letters that Rome was his enemy, that some kind of government official was his enemy, that those who were persecuting him was in that sense his enemy. Nor does he say Nero, who was putting people to death, is his enemy. He always would use language like they're hostile, hostile to the work of the gospel. They're standing against God. There may be people who are used, but behind those people, because he never would use the people, is someone, uh, some spiritual force. He says people have heard him, they've been used to harm the gospel, but never again is flesh and blood our enemy. Spiritual forces use us against one another. You know what, they, what the spiritual forces want to do? They want us to fight and bicker and complain and see each other as the opponent. And so what happens is it says in Galatians at one point, Paul's saying, I wish you would walk in the spirit because you're in the flesh and you're like dogs that just bite and devour each other. I come home and we have two dogs and it's really funny. They get excited and out of their excitement, they start fighting each other. That's the weirdest thing in the world. I think sometimes God looks down here and goes, these people want something and they just, they use, they fight each other and that's the wrong, there's spiritual forces behind it. 
So I want you to think a second. Just struggle you're in. Make this really practical and real for just a moment. Who are you struggling with? Maybe a child, parent, could be a boyfriend, girlfriend, a friend, spouse. Could be with your boss, could be with an employee. You might think it's a government official. You might think it's another board member. You might would you know, might think it's someone on your a coach of your team. Never, says Paul, is our battle flesh and blood. And so Paul writes, there's some spiritual forces at work here. He lists four of them. He says, and it's important that you realize that he could have said against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of the dark age and against the the spiritual forces of evil. But he uses that preposition against four times in order to delineate the fact that there is a rank and file of forces. There is a chain of command. There is a sense of order. There are those who command others. And it's it's this kind of... um, Um, chain of command idea that you get. And the best way I can explain it is think of Nazi Germany. You see, Satan is the most powerful, wicked being in the world. And so what he will seek to do with the forces under him, a third of them who fell, when they fell with Satan, he will use his power and his intimidation. This is the way the world works in order to get them to do what he wants. And so he lists these things, and, 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 and they are of ranks, of principalities, of rulers, authorities. And then he talks about the powers of this dark world. And then he says spiritual forces, those that kind of, in a sense, roam everywhere in the heavenly realms. And they're out to get us to fight against flesh and blood. And they will use whatever they can to do it. In the ancient Greek times, there was a couple kind of, there was a few sports that they would do that were hand-to-hand combat sports. And I'm just going to share with you three of them. One was wrestling. There was, that, was a, that was a big deal, and Paul was well aware of it. That had some rules. They also had boxing, and that boxing would have some rules. There was also a sport called pancration. The word pan meaning all. The idea of kratos is a word for exhibited power. This sport has this idea behind it. You are to use all your power and unleash it upon your opponent in whatever way you want for the purpose of destroying them. No rules. No holds barred. It was total annihilation, a fight to the death. In a book, Gladiators and Caesars, the power spectacle in ancient Rome from University of California Press, the authors cite an early inscription about this sport called pancreation. And it reads like this. Here's the inscription. If you should hear that your son has died, believe it. But if you hear he's been defeated and retired, do not believe it. The authors say, why? Because more died in this sport than surrendered or were defeated. Like other combat sports, it was extremely violent, but this had no rules and it was to the death. And Paul, in a sense, is saying that's the battle we're in. These spiritual forces could care less about you. They would love for us as people in this universe, in this place, in this time, throughout history and history, in in whatever is going to come, to be at war with one another. They are thrilled if we do that. It's really interesting that you need to realize that, that in your workplace or in your athletic team or in your ministry or maybe it's in your marriage or in your family or in a relationship you're in, Satan has no qualms with his and his underlings to use the people in those settings to hurt you, to harm you, or to use you to harm them. 
At one point, Peter, it's really interesting, is Jesus is, is going through his ministry and he wants to make sure they understand who he is. He says to them, who, who do the people say I am? And they gave some opinions. And then Peter, the bright one of the group, goes, I know who you are. You're the Christ. Now, we kind of get this idea that the word Christ is the last name of Jesus, and it isn't. And we will say, well, the Messiah. But the word I really like to use and use often with it is Jesus, the one who is fully anointed by God. And what does that mean? The Holy Spirit was all over him everywhere. And what I find is really interesting, and I said this first service, and I feel like I should say it again. I didn't plan it in my notes, but you know what? Be really careful when you stand against the Holy Spirit and the work the Holy Spirit is doing. You can read it all through Acts. Be really cautious. Be careful your traditions and what your thoughts are. Don't stand against the Spirit. Do you know what Jesus said? You can actually blaspheme me, Jesus, the Son of God, and be forgiven, but you blaspheme the work of the Spirit, you will never be forgiven. There's this sense that Jesus, the anointed one, is called by Peter and he goes, I get it. You're the one that the Spirit of God's on to do this incredible work. We're so thrilled you're here. Lead us into victory. And Jesus goes, man, I'm so glad you get it. And so as he begins to explain to him, he goes, guys, here's what's going to happen. If you've been reading the Old Testament, which I know many of you haven't memorized, they actually memorized it back then. Anybody here memorize it yet? Anyway, neither have I. Anyway, so... So he, he, he kind of gets excited and says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to do this. I have to suffer. And he kind of shares with them. Here's what God's going to do. It's through sacrifice and love and through my, my deeds of patience and love and speaking the truth and, and working these things out. I will actually die on a cross. And Peter goes, no way. That's not how it's going to happen. And here's what Jesus does. He looks Peter in the eye and he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, now think about that a second. Matthew 16, 23. Jesus turned, it says, and said to Peter, out of my sight, Satan. Because Peter, Jesus was very much aware that Satan had no problem using even one of his closer disciples who just got revelation, understanding of what it is. And so Jesus has to say to him, now, Peter, don't let Satan use you to be a hindrance and a, a, a stumbling block to trip up what God wants to do. You do not have the mind in mind, the things of God, but the things of men. Don't allow yourself to trip someone else up thinking they're the opponent. They're not. So he says your struggles is against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual forces using people. If you think in your marriage right now, you know, it's, it is, there's a spiritual force and what God calls you to do is awaken yourself. So often what we do, I do this. Okay, so I do this. You probably don't. But I like to blame others. You know, my wife's here. If Grace would just get her acting together, we'd be good, right? I have found almost always if I pay attention to what's going in my heart and really get things right there, that's when God begins to work. And so that's one of the first things to recognize. And I say that because grace truly is... I just love you, Grace, so thank you for the way you love me. Anyway, okay. Anyway, okay. Our struggle, here's what you need to know if that's true. It's not about flesh and blood. Our struggle is not with the world's weapons. It's with godly weapons. 
You've got to let go of the things that you learned in your childhood and the strategies you've learned to get ahead, maybe even in business in some ways, where you power and intimidate and you control. And, and, and some of you might use self-pity or you use gossip or you complain or whatever the weapon may be. You, you, you create these kind of groups that kind of come together and then you have a force that you can kind of divide so that you can get your way. You've got to get over that. That's not the way God calls us to fight. Anybody willing to get, let it go? If you really want to move in a place where God begins to use you, you've got to let it go. Paul says in Corinthians, the second letter, he says in chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, in the NIV, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And now you're going to catch something because in a moment we'll move into this, the third point. They demolish the arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God in order to take captive every thought to make them obedient to Christ. The Living Bible writes this. I use God's mighty weapons. I'm going to encourage you to start using God's mighty weapons. Well, what are they like? Well, we had an example that when I shared that story of Helen, who, who was far away from her mother and her mother couldn't do anything about it, as a, a mom who didn't believe in a higher power or anything, didn't know what to do, and then began to see the transformation of joy in the life of her daughter and saw her relationship with Jesus Christ, it made these arguments against God fall to the wayside, and she said, I want that. The spiritual forces that had built strongholds and arguments through a culture that stood opposed to God also falls aside because they see in the reality this work, these weapons of God at work, joy and peace and kindness and love and all these things that set people free. If we get out of the whole idea that you and I are one another's opponents. We get out of it in relationships of, of those that we're close to. And if you're in a struggle with a person, it's not about that. It's about something else. And God wants to bring freedom. You may not always be able to change what's going on in someone else's life. But you can take responsibility for how God is using you in that situation. And so Jesus showed a different way. In the, in the book of Acts, in the letter of Acts, it's interesting. The first words, the way they would call those who were disciples or followers of Jesus, you know what? They didn't name them Christians. They weren't called the church. You know what they were called? They were called the way. They didn't know how else to explain it. They said, you know, they live in the way Jesus did. Those are, the, those are the weapons. In the sense, they were taking up godly weapons in, in combating the world, not with force and power and intimidation, but through sacrifice and love and kindness and all these things and speaking the truth about what's true in reality and all this stuff. And they began to call them people the way. So here is something to understand. Flesh can fight flesh. You can win battles with the strategies that you've grown up with. You'll find that eventually they'll be create prisons. And you'll, if, if you get real with that, you can use all these methods to get what you want in the flesh, but the flesh is no match for the spiritual realm. Your flesh may win the battle in the flesh, but it will never get what your heart and your spirit, which God has created, most craves for. Your fleshly natural strategies are no match against spiritual forces. Your wonderful education or great intelligence is no match for the devil. Your notoriety and your connections, your networking will neither scare nor impress Satan. Your eloquence and wit will never end one demonic dispute. 
Rick Renner, who writes a book called Dress to Kill, which is a good book on spiritual warfare, puts it this way. Regardless of how good the flesh looks or how loud the flesh roars, it was never intended to fight a spiritual foe. That's why Jesus models it with these kind of weapons. So as you're thinking about the struggle you're in, what is the spiritual weapon that God wants you to kind of hold in your hand? I mean, if you really want to set the person free and begin to see God work in that place and really shake up the spiritual forces behind what's going on, forgive when sinned against. At times, you'll need to hold boundaries when character growth is called for in another person. That's hard to do. Tough love sometimes. Be gentle and kind in the face of anger. Do good when you've been done wrong. When someone's speaking evil, you start to bless. When someone appears to want to hurt you or harm you and is your enemy, you pray for them. I've got to share with you that if you want to shake up the, the real spiritual forces in any situation of struggle, start exhibiting peace. Hey, that doesn't bother me. God's in control. He's got this thing. I don't have to react. The other thing I want you to notice here is, the, is this idea of struggle. Is not only is it against, it's not against flesh and blood, it's not, it's not a human opponent, nor is in this sense, when we think about it, is it the ways that we've learned to actually manipulate and control and get what we want. It really comes to the forces, that, those weapons that God has given us in the spirit. Now we begin to understand this, this third truth, and that is that our struggle is not a power struggle. I really want you to understand, it's not a power struggle. It is a, it is a struggle for what is truth. Okay, it's not a power. You have all the power that you need. God has given me all the power that I need. It dwells within me through his Holy Spirit. It dwells within you. If you actually just say, as it says in Scripture, you ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and to move in through you. If you've never done it, if you ask the Spirit to do it, you have all the power available that you need. Now it's a matter of how do you activate that? See, Jesus, I mean, Paul says here that in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 20, you have, to, you have to understand what he wants them to understand. This is a true struggle, not a power struggle. You are right now in a true struggle against Satan. You don't need more power. He says, I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you wisdom to see clearly. Then you might really understand, have revelation understanding. Which is not just going to a Bible study and getting some truths in your head. It's about being these truths beginning to sink down deep into your heart until you begin to believe them and live them. And it changes who you are. It reorders the furniture of your mind, so to speak. He says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so you can see what's in the future. I pray and want you to realize that what God has made you rich. Again, that you have realization. I pray, here is verse 19 that you will begin to understand how incredibly great His power is to help those who believe Him. So understand this. It is that same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him in the place of honor at God's right hand in heaven, far, far above any other king or ruler or dictator or leader. That is available to you and to me. And Paul wants us to understand it's not a power or an outage that we're in. It's really a matter of truth coming into our minds and being controlled by that, our minds, so that we begin to truly believe what's in our mind and live it out in our daily walk. And the battle is this. It's truth versus lies. Okay? That's, it's important to understand. It's not a power struggle. It's about truth. And the truth versus lies. Satan is a deceiver. 
He is the father of lies. His native tongue is lying, says Jesus in John chapter 8, verses 40, verse 44. You catch that? Jesus himself said, here's, here's what your real enemy is. He's a deceiver. In fact, the very first language he ever learned, the very first thing that he, the very first words that came out of his mouth were lies. It's his native tongue. Now, if that's the case, if you understand it's truth versus lies, here's the truth. If Satan can get you to believe a lie, he will control you. And if he deceives you, he can then deceive you and control you in order to destroy you and even destroy others around you. He loves destroying your marriage. He loves destroying relationships at work. He's really, really grateful when he sees athletic teams in fights with one another. He's really thrilled. I'm not seeing in a sports field, I mean internally fighting. Um, he says if he can just deceive you, he can get you to believe what isn't true. And in believing what isn't true, he can control you. So, for instance, let me, let me share with you one of the biggest lies that he has ever given. If you in some way believe that your love and acceptance before God is based on your performance and how good you can, to, can be and how many times you go to church and, and, and how well you believe, if it's based on anything about yourself, He's controlling you. And here's what will happen. You will never be able to measure up because every one of us will fall. None of us can do it perfectly. There was only one who performed fully perfectly in this life, and it was Jesus. He's the only one who earned the love and acceptance through his belief and trust and obedience. He performed perfectly even to a death on a cross so that he was raised to new life. And he basically says, if you would believe that, it will forgive you your sins. And God, your father, will look at you. And even though you don't measure up, even though you blow it, even all those things happen, you can have the life I lived for you. And if you know that, now you know your Father in Heaven doesn't hate you. He's not angry with you. He loves you. He loves you so much that He planned all this so that you could live with Him. So you need to live in that. But if you don't understand that, you're going to constantly live in this kind of life. You're going to try really hard. You're going to try and measure up. You're going to try and do it. And then you're going to fail and you're going to feel rotten. You're going to feel guilty. And if you're like me, you're going to try to try and punish yourself. You'll be hard on yourself. You do it long enough and you feel like you paid enough of your own sense of feeling bad. When you feel bad, you finally go, okay, God. God, you get over it. God doesn't want you to live that way. Satan loves that. He just wants you and you fall and you don't perform. You don't measure up. You just go, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I recognize that you have done this. I'm going to walk. I'm going to learn. I'm going to walk more in a sense of your love. I'm just going to I'm going to grab hold of your grace. I'm going to accept the fact that you see me as a sinner, but I know that you can do something in me. I'm just going to hold to you. Here's what happens on the other side. If you're pretty good at measuring up and you think you're doing pretty well and you know, you're the kind of person you were here when it was 30 below last week. Right, some of you weren't. Come on. What happens then is you kind of go, wow. Guys that, guys that work didn't go to church last week. Yeah, I read the Bible. I'm in a study group. I'm doing this and doing that. And, and what he loves then is he can't get you in shame and guilt and get you here so you become ineffective. He loves to make you a pain in other people's lives by being this arrogant person who walks around not expressing what God has done, pointing to God, but having everyone look at you because look what you have done. And that's not where God wants it. And if Satan can get you in any of those places, what? He's controlled you. And what does he do? He destroys other people. He makes you ineffective and destroys people. He makes you a pain and he destroys people because they can't do that. 
So what lies keep you bound? Again, I'm not talking about having more Bible knowledge. It's very important to know the Word of God. And if you don't know the Word of God, you need to be in a place where you start to plan to live out the Word of God. But I'm talking more than just knowing the Word of God in your head. I'm talking about what lies do you believe that keep you bound? It's not what you say you believe. We, I say a whole lot more. I, I sing these songs on Sundays and I'm with the best of them singing my heart out and I can go out and not live what I just sang. So here's the last thing. Our struggle is not about winning, but about standing. I, this is, I say the best point for last because I love this. Guess what? It's not up to you to win. It is not up to you to win. The victory isn't about you making it happen. It's not about, oh, I've got to have this victorious life. He says the whole thing three times is about standing. It's standing against the devil's schemes, understanding what those things are. It's about standing on the ground of what you know to be true. I know that Jesus loves me, that he died for me, he saved me, that no matter what I've done, no matter what I will do, no matter what is going in my heart right now, no matter how I emotionally feel, the fact is true that I am going to stand on the truth that he loves me and I will stand there until I feel it and I will stand there till victory comes. So do you get this? Oh, are you with me? It's about standing. It's not about victory. It's not about winning. Satan would love for you to think, well, I'm not winning. I'm not winning. The battle is the Lord's. And so let me just give you some examples. If you fear your sin is too great, stand on this, which is true. Here's the fact. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand is what the psalmist says. But with you, there is forgiveness. Here is the word of God you may need to put in your head and live out in your heart. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgressions, our transgressions from us. Maybe you don't believe you're good enough, done enough, performed enough, etc. So stand on what is true. For it is by grace you've been saved. It's by faith what you trust in. You trust in him. And this isn't from yourself even. It is the gift that God has given you. Anybody deserve that gift here? No. You fear about your future. Some of you are here going, I just don't know. For Jeremiah 29, 11, you mean to put this in your heart and live it and stand in it, stand your ground. And after you've done everything, stand. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You're in a position right now, you're not sure about your work, or maybe you're out of work, or you're not sure what you're going to do after you graduate from college, and you fear a lack of provision, you stand on what is true, where in Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, and this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. So you fear failure, you're afraid of, 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 of um, you, you, you live with anxiety, and you, and you, you, you move to worry, you lack peace. And so the Lord God comes to you and he says this, God, in Isaiah 26, will keep you in perfect peace. If you do your part by keeping your mind stayed, if you stand, if you participate, you partner with God and say, I will stand on the truth that he promises he will care for me, that he promises he loves me, and I stand there. The victory comes by staying and standing. God's responsible for the victory. I don't know how long it will take in your life. I don't know in what way it will come, but I can tell you this, God will do it. That's what's going to happen. He promises to. I got a text this week from someone. They said in this text, this person writes, I feel so blessed, so thankful for this church. Each day I am learning just how great and magnificent God's love is. I am finally experiencing what I have gone without most of my life. Love, 
and acceptance. I cry when I get these things. Because I'm experiencing it here on earth, I am able to feel how much greater God's is. I've always known capital letters of His grace and love, but I now am feeling it more and more at a greater depth. Knowing about it is one thing. Feeling and experiencing it is a whole new ballgame. Glory to God. You know how this came about in this person's life? You know how the evil was defeated in this person's life? It happened because some people loved and accepted her in the way that Jesus loved and accepted her. It was just these simple acts of love and kindness that, that set this person free and kept the enemy at bay. And it, it, it's the same way it's going to happen at work. It's going to happen in your own marriage. It's going to happen as you begin to start saying, God, help me change me. Help me begin to do what you have said, that this person isn't the opponent. They're not the enemy. You have given me godly weapons and tools to employ. And you've given me armor, which we'll talk about in a few weeks to come. You've given me armor to stand in this battle. And I will, I will know that it's a matter of truth. And my mind will engage in that. And I will stand on the ground that you have given me. I just won't give up that ground. And as I stand and act in the ways that you, Jesus, did, we're going to see evil push back. Someone gave me this text, another text I got. This is this great thought. It's in The Hobbit. They, and I had mentioned this last week, this epic story of good and evil. And Gandalf, the white wizard, who, who says this. He says, some believe that there's only great power that can hold evil in check. Some believe it's only great power that can hold evil in check, but that is not what I've found. I found it as the small things, the everyday deeds by ordinary folk that keeps the darkness at bay. And he makes this last little statement, small acts of kindness and love. I want you to watch this video of Sandy Hook School of Emily, which is titled Evil Didn't Win. Emily loved mornings. 